0: Hi everybody. My name is Carlo, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Thank you, Teresa. She knows from where we come. You know, she—you heard her Friday night. We uh, love you, Carlo. We love you. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. <laughs> we'll talk after.
1: <laughs> um.
0: Well, I come from a, a, a little town in uh, Los Angeles or the California called Tahunga, which is a suburb of L.A. And, and in Southern California, we like to call ourselves the Mecca of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I'm going to have to go back there tonight and let them know that there are about 8,200 people in Minnesota that would beg to differ with them. <laughs> I just want to thank Connie and the committee for inviting uh, my, uh, me and my husband uh, to come out here and share this weekend with you. Um, it's just been magnificent. Uh, the speakers from Teresa and Scott, and then Kerry and Andrew, and I, I know I'm going to miss. I'm going to miss. I'm just going down a bad road here, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Kelvin and and uh, uh, I know, I know. Um, Paul! Right there! I did. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and you know, okay, I'm not gonna do that, but, uh, uh, and then Bob and, um chuck yesterday uh, were so un- inspirational with their uh history talk on how this got started and and you know we are responsible when anyone anywhere uh needs help and reaches out we're there and uh, there are so many different ways to do that my sobriety date september 25th 1987 in in uh Thank you. that's alcoholics anonymous and and uh, the ways that we can reach out and reach back and everything—there's just so many. Um, so I've, I've been inspired, and uh, and I'm going to go home full. And I want to thank my loving husband for for coming out and to, taking his weekend to come out here and support me, and and uh, just uh, um, uh, just be here for me. He's—you know—I was 21 years sober and 51 years old when he and I got together. So I'm glad when I got to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, I wasn't standing around tapping my foot waiting for that one to happen. You know what I mean? Like, oh, my boyfriend's going to be here any minute. You know? Uh, <laughs> I can't stay sober if I don't have a boyfriend. And <clears throat> but for you know, it's funny about perception. You know, when I, my first year, it seemed like uh, lots of people in my first home group. They'd they'd get a year. They'd get meet the love of their life, get married and go to law school. And it just seemed like that was the fast track in Alcoholics Anonymous or something and wasn't happening for me. You know, in fact I forgot that I was still married and it took me four years to pay for the divorce. So (laughs) I was a little foggy But uh but he is the love of my life and he was well worth the wait and Alcoholics Anonymous taught me um, that uh just anybody is not a replacement for nobody. Um, and you guys uh walked me through all that. Um I want to thank Jackie for picking us up at the airport and just making us feel right at home and and uh, getting us settled and and she's been a whirlwind. I mean, you know, we don't need we don't need a lot of hosting or anything, but boy, she's let us know where she was and she's been running around this place just you know on fire for Alcoholics Anonymous and and
1: um,
0: you know that's the way that's that's how it is. I hope that if you're new, you'll come in and fall in love with Alcoholics Anonymous. You know whether we're and and I'm so glad that I clamped on to the to the uh, idea that uh, uh, whatever's going on in my life, the way I if it, things are the way I like them, the way I don't like them, that I let them drive me in instead of out. It, all, all I have to do is come in. I mean, when I'm a mess, I'm here. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous is the best place to be a mess. You know, you're not feeling so good. We'll give you a paper bag. You know, stitch in the back. You know, it's okay. <laughs> It's okay. you know. And when you're feeling good, come in here and share that with us, too. Um, you know, I've had to look bad and good, and I've been upside down and all around and Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I haven't had to go anywhere, and I've been able to stay sober, and I couldn't do that before I got here. You guys packaged these principles in a way that I could hear them and pick them up and use them. When I got here, I didn't have to be any more than I was or know any more than I knew. I, I just came. I just came the way I was, and you guys, you, you gave it to me. So who am I to say no to someone who's asking me for it? Um, <laughs> when I got here, I thought it was very important, like a lot of people have said this weekend, that, that I figure out why I'm an alcoholic. Is it my crazy, dark, dramatic, violent, perverted family? If you had my family, you'd drink too. Um, I've been in AA now long enough to know that there are people who live far worse lives than me and, and and charm childhoods as well, you know, charm childhoods. And they sit right next to me in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. There are people uh, out in the world who who uh, lived like criminal minds, violent lives, you know, just just unspeakable. And yet when they pick up a drink of alcohol, it doesn't do for them what it does for me. So they've had to find another way to get through that. So it's it's not circumstance like that that made me an alcoholic. It shaped the way that I look at things. It shaped some. It gave me an inventory, that's for sure. (laughs) It didn't make me alcoholic. What makes me alcoholic is that allergy of the body and that obsession of the mind. Once I start to drink, I can't guarantee if I'm going to have two or twenty-two. And once that habit is formed, it's well established in me. That's all I can think about. So in the end. Um, For the last few years of my drinking, I'm either drinking or thinking about drinking. I'm drinking or thinking about drinking. It's all I can think about when I'm not drinking. I don't know how to get out of that. I don't want you to think my childhood was all bad anyway. I had a great time in elementary school. Fourth, fifth, and sixth grade were just terrific. I had a great time. I was a new kid on the block a lot. My my mother was a single mom of two, uh, two daughters and we moved around a lot for the rent and, uh, uh, so I found my way in. I was a, kind of an outgoing kid. I don't know if I was a people, I, I hate that term people pleasing. I, I think that we should use self-seeking. That's what it is. <laughs> and, uh, and our friend, uh, our friend Ron says, and, and while you're using that term, if you can find anybody who you actually pleased it, as you were going about that, <laughs> you might, that might be a journey worth taking. But, uh, <laughs> but I found my way into these to, into these school situations just by figuring out, what are we doing here? You know, are we running track? i got to be the first. Are we doing school politics? i got to be president. Are we, are we doing academics? I gotta know all the answers. You know, I had to be the first and the most and on, in charge and on top, you know, and by the time sixth grade was over, I was tired and I needed a drink. You know what I mean?
1: Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you're running the world in you're ten, that's a big job. <laughs> you know, I was gonna be the first woman president, the first woman to run a four minute mile, the first woman major league baseball player, you know, I was just like, oh. I got my first social resentment behind a game of spin the bottle. (laughs) I know they don't even play that game these days. They just get right down to
1: business.
0: (laughs) 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 But we played it back then, and I was at my friend Leonard's house uh, one summer afternoon. It was that summer between 6th and 7th grade, you know, going up into middle school. They call it middle school now. It was junior high back then, and... And a few boys, a few girls, sitting in a room, and we we're spinning the bottle and passing around a bottle of his dad's whiskey. And, and those weren't the first drinks I ever took, but these were the ones where I really started to connect the dots that alcohol would do something for me I couldn't do for myself. You know, it had an effect, and I started to catch on to that. And anyway, the bottle we were spinning landed on me, and I went off into the bedroom uh, with one of the boys, and we were both doing the same thing as far as I could tell. But when we came back out of that bedroom, they called him a player and me a slut, and I did not think that was fair. <laughs> I still don't think it's fair if you want to know the truth. <laughs> but every sponsor I've ever had has told me the fair comes around once a year and it lasts two weeks. That's all you get. So, so much for fair. <laughs> We were in kind of a conservative area. Um, it was a, a lot a time of racial tension and a lot of gang stuff and a lot of a lot of stuff going on. A lot of anger, a lot of angst. You know, uh, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King had been assassinated. It was just a troubled times, and the teachings of parents were coming down through kids. Kids that had been my friends, good friends the year before, were now it was changing, and. Um, and boys my age were looking at me funny. I got a reputation after that game of spin the bottle that ran through junior high like wildfire. And and I found out years later that I wasn't doing half of what some of the other girls were doing. But you know I didn't get those those principles of uh, 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 those uh, unwritten laws like good girls do and say they don't or don't and say they do or something like that. I, I don't think I still get it right, but. You know, and and so I had this reputation. And and the way that I am is for a while I'll fight, and then I start to back away. I just set it down, I back away. My pride kicks in, my feelings are hurt, and I just back away. And I started hanging out more in the girls' room than I did in the classroom with the other girls who were backing away from their lives. And we'd bring stuff from our mothers' medicine cabinets and from their liquor cabinets and hang out and, After a while, school just wasn't working for me anymore. And because of all the stuff that was happening at home, school had been my last bastion of refuge. It had been where I went to. There was no – you know, when you're doing schoolwork, there's no emotional – uh, subjectivity, you know, you do the work, you get the grade, and, and you move on. It's, you know, you, you got the validation right there, and, and so that was all over. And, and uh, at a very early age, any talent or, or gifts or potential that I had, I began to trade away for the effect that alcohol would produce, and I did it willingly. I didn't understand the gravity of the consequences, but I did, I, you know, I just saw it, and alcohol was better. Alcohol did the growing up for me. Alcohol was the cool for me. Alcohol was the maturity for me. It did it all. It was the spiritual experience for me. I believed in God. I believed in God up till then. Before that, I'd taught Sunday school. I'd been out in the parking lots helping you find Jesus, you know, in the parking lot. And, uh, um, you know, but I'd go to church and somebody would show up with a bottle of Strawberry Hill and, and be all over uh, and I started to leave home I just started to leave home because for me hope is out on the open road you know hope just seems like it's just just, just a mile away just, just up there just over the hill you know all it takes really for me is a long slow train whistle and a Willie Nelson song and I'm on the road again you know what I mean so I'd get out there on the on ramps of the 10 freeway going east and the 101 freeway going north and I'd stick my little thumb out and I'd crawl in the car or the truck going wherever with whoever and I'd be on my way to somewhere else and I love that feeling for me, that felt like the bottle-in-the-glove compartment, you know. I didn't even have to have that sucker open, you know. I just knew any minute now it was all going to be okay. Now, consequently, because of that, I was young, and I started uh, getting picked up, and I found myself uh, being uh, treated to some of the Southern California hot spots, like Indio Jail and Riverside Juvenile Hall and uh, uh, Sen- uh, Central Los Angeles uh, Juvenile Hall and, and they'd send me home to mom and home to dad, and we did that whole dance for a little while. And when I was 14, I found myself in a place called North Beach. A girlfriend of mine and I had gotten a long ride all the way from a place called Isla Vista, just outside of Santa Barbara, all the way up into San Francisco. And this guy plunked us down in the middle of a, of a North Beach. North Beach in San Francisco, a little party town. Um, we got out there and looked around and there were hookers and dealers and pimps, oh my. And um, (laughs) We weren't on that street 10, 15 minutes before a couple of guys approached us and offered us money for sex and we said yes and did the next indicated thing and boom, a whole new career path opened up for us. And I started living a day at a time in a way I've not had to live in a very, very long time. And I started letting old men stick needles in my arms and my life began to change dramatically from there. Our book talks about our alcoholic life seeming the only normal one and it certainly was that for me. It just seemed to me that there were more people out there doing what I knew to do, what made sense. You know, you traded away, you traded away a little piece of this, a little piece of that, my dignity, self-respect, anything I knew to be true was I'd trade away for a better idea. <clears throat> when I was 15, I was being admitted to a mental hospital. <laughs> They weren't talking to me a lot about alcoholism. They were talking to me about disorders. I was a very disordered-looking child by that time. I was alternately violent and withdrawn and living with a level of frustration down in my gut I didn't know how to talk about. I didn't know how to describe. I didn't know what made sense. I didn't know what mattered anymore. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous many, many years later, I heard someone describe it as like being a scream without a mouth. And I thought, you guys know. You guys know. But I didn't know back then, so they were treating me with daily nutritional supplements, thorazine, meloril, valium, <laughs> down <main> sleepers. <laughs> that was a treatment for what I looked like. I'd become intimately familiar with five-point restraints. You know, they didn't know. I didn't know. You know, they, they find out by trial and error as well. And I didn't know how to tell the truth. I didn't know what the truth was. I didn't know what the questions were. Um... It wasn't until I was tired enough and out of ideas enough that I came crawling into Alcoholics Anonymous fourteen years later. You know, and picked up the tools you handed me and when I started to use them they worked. That's how I know I'm alcoholic. That's the only way I know. But I had to be Tom uh, Father Tom always says, You gotta be pretty sick and tired to find us interesting. <laughs> 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 you know, it's so, okay, I'll try. <laughs> But until then, man, it's a wall. And if you don't want to go crazy in the nut house, you got to get busy. And one of my favorite ways to be busy was, al- was, uh, was alcohol. Was boys. <laughs> you know, you got no alcohol. And I, uh, you know, I've already told you that I love all the boys. But my favorites are those sexy, smoldering types. You know the kind. They just sit back there and simmer. You know. <laughs> you, <laughs> you just never really know when they're gonna blow. <laughs> I know we got some of those in here this morning. <laughs> I see the smoke curling up from the corners. <laughs> but the trouble with guys like that in the nut house is they're usually hiding from a junior prison sentence. You know, they're they're trying to stay out of YA. They're trying to lay low in the nut house. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that'll work. Lay low until they blow and um, And they blow eventually, you know, like my first boyfriend, he blew, and he threw a, a chair through the big plate glass window of the boys' unit, and then they uh my second boyfriend he blew and he threw a nurse through the big plate glass window of the men of the boys unit, and they've since replaced that big plate glass window with plexiglass <laughs> but uh you know i uh We'd sit around and we'd play those romantic, sentimental jailhouse songs, you know, like, ooh, when will I see you again? And, uh, you know, just press our little faces against the, bl- the plate glass window in the girls' unit and long for what we couldn't have across the pool. You know, the boys' unit was right over there. Isn't that where that feeling is, though, too, in the longing? Isn't it in the longing? It's never in the getting. You get, you got to get another one. It's not good enough, you know. Just... <laughs> but it's in that... Anticipation, isn't it? (gasps) As soon as I, as soon as I get that. But I remember one afternoon sitting outside on the smoke break bench watching my boyfriend Terry being cuffed and escorted off by security. He's the one who threw the chair through the window. And he's gone, he's going, he's out of here now. Out of here for good. And I can't believe it, and I'm smoking my tragic cigarettes and channeling Greta Garbo. just inside, you know, I've always thought I should have a soundtrack to my life, you know, music playing in the background of all this drama. And just inside the girls' unit, I can hear Diana Ross singing at Top Decibel, touch me in the morning and just walk away. <laughs> and it took me a long time to realize I was brokenhearted and blue before I ever had a real date. Because <laughs> it's the way I'm looking at my life and it's what I'm looking with. And, I'm, and the trouble with that is, I'm always about half a bubble off what I'm looking at, anyway. You know, I mistake what's out there. You know, I, I, uh, I'd mistake arrogance for confidence. I'd mistake sex for love. I'd mistake brute strength for strength of character. And I'd get it up in my hot little hands, and it would just turn to dust because it wasn't it. It wasn't it. I had to come to AA to learn that it's when I'm given of myself that that gaping hole in my soul gets smaller. Never going to come from out there. It's deep down inside. But I chased it, you know, I chased it with the fur. I was a busy girl in the, in the, uh, in the mental hospital. I went from the girls unit to the co-ed unit to, uh, uh, Ward D where they put all the patients they just don't know what to do with anymore. I turned sweet 16. I was supposed to be there two weeks. I ended up being there for a year. I just, you know, sort of made myself at home. I'd found every escape, uh, way, uh, route out of that hospital. Whenever I'd get thirsty enough, I'd go over the wall or under the gate and, and, uh, be out for a week or two and have a party. And when I was tired, I'd come home. I'd come home through the front door because I live, that's where I live in the nut house. And, uh, they'd park me again. And I went over for the last time and met the love of my life there on that last unit. And I was a vision for you by that time. I had uh, casts on both of my arms up to my shoulders because I've been cutting because that was a whole different way to change my reality. Had nothing to do with suicide. It was just a release. I was no longer bathing or getting dressed because you don't have to do that to date in the nut house. And and I met the love of my life there on that unit went over the wall with him. And word had it, I heard uh, just a couple months later that they saw my little foot go up over the chimney and over the wall eventually and back into the car. And they said, wait, just give her a minute. (laughs) And that was the last time I left. Um, you know, and back in juvenile hall and waiting for placement, sitting in front of a judge, waiting for placement. My dad used to say, they're just trying to buy you some time, Carla. And perhaps they did. Perhaps that's what happened. Um, <clears throat> I'm one of two remaining siblings in my in my family. We had out of four. Um, one dr- died of suicide at 17. The other died of drug addiction at 30. And, and um, my youngest sister... Um, is in uh, Wisconsin now, and she's uh, she's just uh, had a double mastectomy, and she can't stop drinking. Um, you know, no matter no matter what uh, no matter what, she can't stop drinking. Um, so most of my adolescent life was in one rehab or another you know they're just trying to trying to find the thing right and i'm sometimes i'm in and sometimes i'm not you know i can walk the walk and or talk the talk inside and i tell you everything you need to hear and i went into the rehab that was kind of based on on was working you know way back then and and so they they had this adolescent program where you wear signs and uh, you know two very prophetic signs they made me wear the first one they made me wear was um, i think i'm tough but i'm only a cream puff <laughs> And the next one was, Know It All Starts Again. And I hope I never forget that one. You know, when I think I know it, when I think I know, I got no chance of learning what really is. So I ended up in a girl's home at the end of all of that. I was 17, and I met my roommate, and and we were on the same page. You know, I, I here's where I just want to tell you that I've always believed in God. I told you a little bit about that earlier. I've, I've believed in God. I never doubted that there was some great power that runs in and around and through us. I felt it before I ever had a resentment or ever had a drink. I was very, very young. You know, three, four, five years old, laying in my bed. I knew there was something. But I just couldn't stay tapped in. You know, I just couldn't establish and maintain some kind of good relationship with that. And I didn't understand it. And then the more ideas that would come at me, the more confused I'd become. And when alcohol came in, man, it just smoothed the edges over all of that for me. It seemed like it hooked me up, hooked me right back up to that spirit that I knew. And the trouble with that is, like Teresa said Friday night, then it dumped me. And that's why I'm here. Alcohol became the power and then it dumped me. And I had to find a power bigger, because even though it dumped me, I was hanging on to its ankle. (laughs) Please, you know, I tried it all. I was born into a Southern Baptist home, and that religion worked very well for my mother uh, till the day she died, just a few years ago. You know, worked very well for her. I couldn't hear it. You know, we always talk about how they don't have it. No, they have it just fine. Kelvin said it last night. We're on we're on the short bus, man. We had to have it delivered special. (laughs) We rent from them. Do you get that? (laughs) Um, Then I tried being a Catholic for a couple of weeks. (laughs) You know, I I love the idea of, uh, you know, I see those little girls in white dresses and the missiles and the rosary and the candles and the prayers. And I thought, God, something like that's got to work, you know. And uh, then I burned black candles and prayed to the other guy for a couple of years, you know. I uh, Just hedging my bets, really, you know. I, <laughs> I just want to be on the side that's winning. I don't really care. <laughs> and the television series Kung Fu came out, you know. David Carradine was a star of that show. And man, that dude walked the Wild West in bare feet, you know. He was cool. You know, his, his name was Cain, and he just walked from town to town, and, and, uh, and, 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 people sometimes, people would greet him, whole groups of men would greet him with great hostility sometimes, just because of the way he looked. You know, they didn't like the way he looked. He was, you know, just didn't look like them, and, and he, they'd greet him, and they'd attack him verbally, you know, and, and, uh, and pearls of wisdom just rolled off his tongue, you know, just, and they'd change, and they'd go off to help somebody, you know, just like in a minute. I thought, oh, that's power. That's real power. And then he'd walk to another town, and they'd greet him with great hostility again. And This time they'd attack him physically, you know. And when they did that, he kicked their ass. (laughs) And I wondered what he had. You know, it seemed like he was a perfect balance of strength and serenity, you know. And so I've got all these ideas and I get to this girl's home later on and my friend, she's on the same page. Now that combined with the idea of what I thought the 60s were, might have been, had I been out there in them. I was 12 and 69, so they were over <laughs> by the time I got out in the world. But I used to watch the news. I watched those people in the 60s. I mean, they were tough. They marched. They said no. They stood up. Right? They stood up. They said no. And they said they had Crosby, Stills, and Nash and the Grateful Dead and Traffic and Blind Faith. You know yeah <laughs> they had peace and love and free love and i wanted what they had and so my friend she's on the same page my roommate in this girl's home and we're talking to our friends and our friends said yeah man those people san francisco's gone to sea but those people moved to oregon and we said there's people and they're in oregon so we went out the second story window of that girl's home and down the tree and into randy's truck and off to oregon where god might be and <laughs> And life was supposed to change from the outside in up there, you know. We went up there, and we were going to live off the land, and they rented a little house in the Eugene-Springfield area, and they let me come with them, and and we planted a garden in the front yard. And that's where I learned that when they talk about hoeing in Oregon, they meant with a tool. It was a... (laughs) It's a whole different deal. Two things happened to me that I couldn't couldn't see while it was happening of course but I saw it later and and uh one was when we couldn't always drink the way I needed to drink up there I was trying to lay low too I didn't want to go back to lock up I just wanted to be unnoticed and kind of wander through through the world uh you know un- <laughs> untouched anymore and and uh but we couldn't so I didn't try to steal or anything. We didn't we couldn't always drink the way I needed to drink. And when I can't, and when I've got no steps or fellowship or God of my understanding, I've got no booze, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And my life becomes quickly your fault. Everything that happens to me becomes your fault and I'm edgy and, and, and you can't approach me and I and I'm just and I'm just like that all the time. And uh and when I can drink the way I need to drink, I'm always overshooting the mark. And that was happening again and still at seventeen years old. And I was asked to leave there, and I was asked to leave a lot of places. And I always ended up in the woods out there. You know, the woods was an alternative I learned about in Oregon, and I liked that. You know, it's a little little cooler, a little more peaceful. It's a little, uh, you know, a little more worthy of the delusion, I guess. I don't know. Um, I, I'd just sit out there, eat LSD, and look for hobbits, you know, and just <laughs> <you> know, hoping. <laughs> it's got to be true. Um, I ended up back down to my father's house against his better judgment, and uh, and he let me stay there for just a few months. And now uh, my father, he comes from a long line of alcoholics, and his father was a violent, violent alcoholic. My father's an untreated alanon, and and uh, he just uh, he does not like the idea of being detached. He thinks that we're trying to tell him not to care. And uh, um, but uh, he had this beautiful liquor cabinet in his hole in his uh, den. And um, and he never drank from it, so I figured it was there for me. And every morning we'd get up at the same time, and he'd take off for work, and I'd go sit in his den, and I'd drink from his liquor cabinet until he'd come home in the afternoon, and he'd see me sitting in the very spot he'd left me that morning, and I'd see that look in his in his eyes, that broken hearted look we all know when we look into the eyes of our loved ones, and and I'd have nothing to say for myself. I didn't know how to tell him I was afraid. I didn't know how to tell. I didn't even know that was what I was. I didn't know how to tell him I didn't know where the last few years of my life had gone. After a few months of that, he just couldn't take it anymore. And he came to me right before my 18th birthday, and he said, I'm I'm not going to watch you die, and I'm not going to help you do it. you got to go. And on my way out the door, all I could remember was that one of the counselors at the rehab had told me I was a great actress. And I know today I must have misunderstood because I ended up out on Hollywood Boulevard. And not a lot of auditioning going on out there, I can promise you that. I was 18 years old, starting my days off with a pint of pop vodka, and I'd just go wherever the day took me. And some days it was a party, and some days it wasn't. There was not a lot of hope about it getting any different. And to this day, I love driving down Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood Boulevard, and I get to see a whole new generation of the same girls sitting out there with very little hope about it getting any different. Only now I get to say a prayer of gratitude for myself and a prayer of hope for her that maybe someday she'll get to find what I found here in AA if alcoholism is her problem. A few months into that, I met a man walking down Hollywood Boulevard and I saw the light in his eyes. And I didn't realize it was orange sunshine, but we hit it off. And and I moved in with him that night and I didn't even know his last name. And six weeks later, he's asking me to leave and I still don't know his last name. (laughs) But I like to bring him up because years later he was on my eight-step list. He was someone who just, I barely got the writing done when I knew. You know, we just got some of those people we know were ready, willing, able, boom. I'm, you know, I I know what I need to do with him. And, I mean, he'd been nothing but kind to me. He had his own problems, but he had been nothing but kind to me. And I went through his life like that proverbial tornado in six weeks. So I spent the last part of my first year looking for him to find a year of sobriety, looking for him to make, sure, to, to make those amends. And, and um, <clears throat> you know, I, of course I couldn't find him. I went everywhere I knew to look, and not knowing his last name makes it more difficult. <laughs> But there was something, there was something in my heart that took that search, you know. And and on that search, when I went to this one place where we had lived, it was right off of Highland uh, on uh, Camrose, right behind the Hollywood Bowl. And there was a little uh, section of houses there. And the day that I went there just to ask around about him, they were having a big old yard sale because they were getting ready to transform that little neighborhood into the administrative offices of the Hollywood Bowl. And I felt like it was just, you know, doing my eighth and ninth steps, such a such a symbolic uh, idea of transformation for me. I got to go, and they were moving on, and so was I. And so I went back and told my sponsor that, and she said, you got to stop looking for him now. You're being unproductive. You're kind of chasing your tail. If you're supposed to find that guy, you'll find him, but in God's time, not yours. So leave it alone for now. There are some things you can do. In the meantime, you know, go about your business, try to finish your other amends, but, uh, uh, you know, you can, like, change your behavior now. Like, start by trying to be a friend to, man, to a man in a uh, uh, vertical fashion. Why don't you start there? <laughs> All these years later, I got friends of both genders, you know. There's nothing like that feeling of self-respect. You know, right up there with that feeling of being useful is that feeling of self-respect. And you you can't take that away from me. I can give it away, but you can't take it. Right before my 13th AA birthday, I had to go give a talk on the other side of town. It was a hot Sunday afternoon, and I didn't feel like going. And thank God you guys have taught me it's not how I feel, it's what I do that matters. You know, I went out there. And I used to think I could blow off a dinner for two and not be missed, really, you know.
1: It
0: <laughs> doesn't really matter. But don't you dare not invite me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I went out and I gave that talk, and, of course, I felt better. And when the meeting was over, this man stopped at the, in, the, in the receiving line, and he said, Hey, where were you in 1976? And it was a guy from Hollywood Boulevard standing in front of me with eight and a half years of sobriety, and I with almost 13.
1: <laughs>
0: so I got to make those direct amends to him, and we went to dinner, and, you know, I'd ask him, you know. I, I told him what I knew and the harms I was aware of and what I could do to make those right, and, and um I asked him if he had anything he needed to say, and most of his sentences started with "Are you sure you want to hear this?" And uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but he said, "You know, Carla, that's long forgiven, long forgotten. I just can't believe you're still alive." And uh, and he's right. You know, if we're in this room this morning, we're the lucky ones. We're the lucky ones. Somehow, some way, we've managed to slip through that window of grace one more day to come in here and sit together and recharge and regroup and then see what we can go back out there and pack into the stream of life. You know, grace falls on all of us, but we got to do something. I'm responsible for, for answering that call. Sobriety was a call to wake up, but I've got to answer. At least it seems to me, because there are an awful lot of people that belong here that aren't here. A lot of people dying that could be alive, maybe I don't know. Um, but that was a long time to come, and I left Hollywood, and and uh, you know I hooked up with. I, I I love to be with those guys that you pay the high price for being with them. You know, there's just a there's this much payoff and that much price. You know, <laughs> it just seemed like it's worth it or something or you know it's just no fun if if you're not hurting or i don't don't know what it is but uh i you know i i hooked up with another guy from another rehab because that's where they keep the boyfriends and girlfriends you know (laughs) we're both loving the idea of peace and love and all that stuff we just couldn't stop knocking the hell out of each other really long enough to implement the principles fully of peace and love and we beat each other up and down the California coast and pitched a tent in the mountains in southern Oregon and lived there till the rains came and then moved into a roofless cabin just north of Grant's Pass and threw a plastic tarp over the top and called it a skylight, and then the baby came. And, you know, back out in the woods again, you know, and prayer and meditation. I tried that, you know, meditation. And, you know, it, and it, but, but I was drinking and taking a lot of things, too, to kind of try to, you know, expand and access that uh Uh, That And what I discovered when I got sober was that everything I'd put into my body, trying to access, that were the very things that blocked me. And then when I got sober, the only thing blocking me now is me. (laughs) And that's a handful in itself. But but we had this little girl, and I thought having this little girl was going to change the way I live, change the way I look at things. I love this little girl. I loved her. But we all know that alcoholism doesn't care who you love supposed to be a little girl, everything else. And it became booze and little girl and everything else. And then booze and everything else. And she got in the way of one of our fights. You know, again, we love the idea of peace and love. We just, you know, couldn't, couldn't hang. You know, our book talks about moral and philosophical convictions galore. You know, I want to be that, but I have to be this. I don't know how to get from here to there. I want to be, I, I swore I'd never be this. And I'm this more than ever. She gets. The, she got in the way of one of our fights and I had to take her up to Idaho. It's got to be better up the road, right? We're up in Idaho. I, I've got uh, uh, three jobs, tending bar and cocktail waitressing up there. I, I still can't bring home enough money to pay rent for more than a week at a time. My kid's one of those kids that you see in her T-shirt and underwear and yesterday's lunch down the front of it because the mom's not paying attention. We live in the little rent-by-the-week motels up there. We keep moving, keep moving. After a while, Idaho's not working. We're back down in L.A. I'm renting a room from my aunt in, in a, an area called Covina, and we're just about 35 miles from a, a Hollywood where I got my job tending bar again. never occurred to me not to drink on the job. Why else would you have those jobs? It seemed to me I was very efficient in my thinking. My daughter was almost four years old, and every afternoon I'd kiss her goodbye, and I'd take off for the bar in Hollywood, and I'd stop at the halfway point, which was a bar in Arcadia called the First Cabin, stop in there every afternoon like clockwork and have my shots of Querble Gold and Bud Backs. So those are the primer drinks, the drinks that got me ready to go do my shift. Get up off the bar stool and go out there in Hollywood and pour drinks and drink with everybody till the wee hours of the morning and crawl back home and start all over again. Did that like every for months and one afternoon i kissed my girl goodbye and i got up and i went and sat on that same bar stool, had those same shots of gold and same bud backs and to this day i don't know what was different on that day from the day before except for 24 hours because i didn't love my daughter any less on that day than i love her today but i couldn't suspend my drinking i couldn't stop long enough to get up and go take care of business in either direction so i sat on that barstool and i lost them both in one fell swoop the kid and the job were gone And I stayed and I lived off the kindness of strangers in that little area in Arcadia for about a month until I fell into another job in another dive bar. And that's just how it went, you know. I met the man that I would marry. I thought maybe if I got married, made my life look like I thought yours was, that would do it, right? We'll move indoors. We'll get out of this business. It's this business. And he and I got married about the time we should have split up and we moved into that apartment. We became the neighborhood entertainment Uh Settle our arguments with a shotgun. That's how we did it. Whoever got to it first wins. (laughs) My first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous was after one of our fights. We were at the bar where we drank, and we were fighting over whether or not I should get off the bar stool. And I lost that fight. I ended up with some black eyes and broken ribs and nothing real new. It's just, you know, another one. Nobody in that bar feeling sorry for me, just glad I was leaving. My husband had to pick me up and take me to the hospital. And I can't tell you how many times I put him at cross purposes, too, of having to save my life and kill me all at the same time. You know, it was just always a dilemma for him. So he took me to the hospital, I got fixed up, and then he brought me home. And he had to leave for work that weekend. And before he did, he set me up with a giant ice chest full of beer and a bottle of beef eater gin chilling on top. And now I'm drinking gin because tequila had been making me so mean. You understand. And... I started drinking the gin and dialing the phone, and I don't know all who I called, but I know I felt like a battered woman, so I called a battered woman shelter, and I asked the woman who answered the phone to fix my life, and she asked me if I'd ever been to an AA meeting. (laughs) I don't know how she made that leap, but she did. (laughs) So I went to an AA meeting that night. It's funny, you know, how all of a sudden you hear, you hear, and I found an AA meeting, perfectly wonderful meeting that night, not far from where I lived. It was there then. It's there now. And I went there with everything but willingness, everything but readiness. And you can't make me ready. You just can't make me ready. I can't even make myself ready, really, except by taking the walk. But I went in there, and I, there was a woman speaker, and she talked for, you know, about an hour or something. And all I heard her say was that somewhere during her drinking career, she switched to beer. So I did. <laughs> I thought, AA says switch to beer. This beer's not really drinking anyway, is it? It's just more like a breakfast food as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> you know, it's got the hops and barley and, you know, it's a whole grain breakfast food, really, is <laughs> quite healthy. And it allowed me to drink for another couple of years. You know, it gave me the illusion I was controlling my drinking. You know, I got a little further into my day before it was really, really bad and couldn't do anything else and... Um, you know, so I'm under the illusion that I'm controlling my drinking. And, um, a couple of years later, I got the kid back for better or worse and made our life look just, just right for just long enough to get her back. My husband and I and my daughter were living across town in a little, uh, little tiny apartment in Pasadena and i had gotten a job. I'd try to hang on you know once in a while i'd make that leap and i'd try to come in make the reentry into the real world you know and and but i'd drink and i and then i'd, I'd slide right off and i'd make the leap and i'd slide off again and i couldn't work in the bars anymore because i couldn't finish a shift i couldn't stay sober long enough to finish a shift so um so i, was, I got this job answering phones for the city of pasadena and and, uh, it was just, you know, it was a simple job and I really wanted to do well. I really wanted to do it right. I, and, and so some days I'd try to get there without having those morning drinks, you know, to stop the shakes. I'd try to get there and it just for, just for a few hours. If I it till lunchtime, make it till break even, that'd be good. You know, and when I couldn't drink, I would be all I could think about, all I could think about till I could get to that next drink. And so I spent a year of that alcoholic torture, you know, drinking and thinking about drinking, drinking, thinking about drinking, drinking, thinking about drinking. And I was the girl with the hollow leg, you know, whenever we'd go out for drinks all together, you know, sanctioned drinks, the kind that everybody goes out for, you know. I was the one that says, where are we going next, you know, and everybody else is going home. I was no longer welcome in the neighborhood bars where I used to drink. I just, um, my life was becoming very small. My daughter and I, we couldn't go anywhere, really. I knew we could get places, but I didn't know if we could get back. So our life just got real, real small. We were there about a year until we had one more of those fights my husband and I one more Saturday afternoon with the cops in the driveway one more time and the neighbors peeking out the window wondering what's going on at Charlie and Carla's house one more time the kids over there in a uh, in her unkempt hair and her mismatched clothes and she's looking at just looking at me with that look that fear in her eyes just one more time our friend Mickey says it's not the not the yet so much that used to bother him it was the oh no not agains you know oh no not again and I didn't know I have anything to say for myself. The cops left for the last time. The husband left for the last time. They took the gun. Everybody's gone. It's being the kid and the booze. And I can't stop drinking. I can't stop drinking. And I see my life falling down around me. And that's not it. I can't stop drinking. My first sponsor told me if I wanted to affect a conscious contact with a power greater than myself, why don't I start by counting the coincidences that happen in my life? Let's see how God's been working. Can we check that out? One of the first things that I could see was that I had moved in next door to a woman who had five years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. Didn't know that. Didn't know that. And a couple days after that fight, now my husband's gone. It's just me and and the kid. And and uh, this lady uh, from next door came knocking on my door a couple days later. And she brought me a big book and a 12 and 12. And I invited her in. And she sat on my couch. And she just told me her story. She talked about her. And in her story, I could hear me. I could hear that she used to drink like me. And I'd seen with my own eyes that she hadn't been drinking anymore. For a whole year, she wasn't drinking, you know, in front of me. And and, uh, and what impressed me more about that was it didn't seem to bother her that she wasn't drinking. <laughs> you know, that got my attention, you know. I just, uh, wow. Because so when I'm untreated, I've got no steps of fellowship or God of my understanding. I've got no booze. I feel like you've stripped the coating off my wires, you know. I feel oversensitive and underloved. And I don't know what you meant by that or why you looked at me that way. <laughs> And my head closes in on me from there. It just gets so loud. Sooner or later, I've got to look at that first drink. I've got to start eyeing it. I've got to start, you know, thinking that's an option. Even though I know that I can't guarantee if I'm going to have 2 or 22. Even though I know that trouble doesn't have to, I don't have to invite trouble anymore. It just comes to visit me unsolicited. Even though I know all of that. I'm going to have to take it even though I know that window of relief gets smaller and smaller and smaller, I'm going to have to take it. It's got to be a good 10 minutes anyway. So I don't know if her 12 little thinly veiled Sunday school sentences are going to have any effect on me in the face of what I'd become. I just didn't know. It seemed like I'd heard them all before, you know. It just seemed like too pale, you know. But I was sick. I was getting real sick. And... uh I didn't stop drinking that day, but it was about a week and a half um, later. And I just didn't go back and buy any more booze, and the kid was somewhere else. I think she was at her dad's, and and um, and I just didn't go anywhere else and get any more booze. And I stayed home and I shook it out. And I saw and heard things that weekend. That and um, and I I just spent the weekend alone and into Monday and into Tuesday. And by Tuesday I was stark r- raving sober. <laughs> Terrified, and that was the moment I was afraid of. I always thought that if I was, if I got sober, I'd OD on over awareness. Really, you know, it would just be <laughs> too much. I went back to my neighbor and I asked her what to do, and she sent me up to a meeting in Sierra Madre, and that became my first home group. Um, <clears throat> I went up there, and the hope I heard in that meeting that night uh, came in the form of small talk. It just came in the form of small talk. I sat way back by the exit sign, back by the door, and. And uh, and I watched you guys, and you seemed to care about each other. You were asking each other how you were doing. How you doing? Um, didn't you have a job interview yesterday? How'd that go? Didn't your kids start school? Didn't you start school? How'd that go? Did you have a job interview? Did you get a sponsor? Do you need a big book? How you doing? How's your lawn? <laughs> your lawn. And I thought, God, could my life ever be so elegant and simple as to be concerned about a lawn? <laughs> you know, not just to sleep on either, but, but, uh... <laughs> and you know, it said over and over and over in these rooms, I don't know, I couldn't, if I had to put a formula to it, I just, I don't know if I could, but there was stuff going on in that room and I was, I stayed sober till midnight. And you told me to keep coming back, and I hadn't heard that in a long time, you know. And I was—I started going to meetings. I was going to two and three meetings a day, you know. I was running off from work and running to lunch meetings, and then coming back, and then going to the early meeting and going to the night meeting, and and uh, I stayed sober 89 days, and then I had to have that first step edge came back, and I thought, whoa, a big book and a beer sounds a lot better than this, you know. I just. <laughs> And, uh, and I had to, I had to have a, a, another 24 hour drunk. I had to finish that drunk and then my sponsor came and picked me up and she took me to the big book study that night and I, I was not sober and I was not in any pretty condition. And I went up there and you guys didn't wait. You didn't wait. A guy came up to me and he said, you want to come up and make coffee with me on Tuesday? And I thought, dang, somebody thinks I'm going to be here on Tuesday. <laughs> And I came up, and I was making coffee on Tuesdays, and, and then he stopped coming, and I was the coffee maker on Tuesday nights for a long time. And uh, and I love that coffee commitment. I love these little jobs we get in meetings, you know. I'm responsible. That's That's what I could do. That's what I could do to be a part of the meeting. That's what I could do to be part of the group. That's what I could do that would get me in. That's what allowed me to be in and be purposeful without actually having to talk to you very much, too. You know, I was very busy making coffee and stacking packets and uh <laughs> counting stir sticks. <laughs> but I'd get off work at five o'clock and, and I'd be in the meeting because even though the meeting didn't start till eight o'clock, you know, because I was in the in the store buying stir sticks and coffee and. Creamer and trying to figure out whose birthday it was and where's the cake and you know, and it kept me thinking about you. And it was the first introduction to, to the absence of the noise on the inside of my own head. When I'm thinking about you, I'm not thinking about me. And I didn't know that. I didn't understand what self-centeredness was the definite, by definition or anything else when I got here. But to experience that, to experience the lack of self-centeredness just for a few minutes, you know, I want more of that stacking chairs and pouring coffee and how you doing and and being able to finally stick my hand out, you know. And most of that stuff, most of the new stuff I had to try was like close your your eyes and hold your nose and try it, you know, how you doing. (laughs) If I could have come in here and stolen what you had without having to talk to any of you, I (laughs) would have. And then I started taking the steps with my sponsor, and I was showing up. And, and uh, uh, my first round of amends happened with my family. I was about nine months sober, and, and uh, coincidentally, when the obsession to drink was lifted from me, all of a sudden I looked around. I hadn't thought about drinking. That horrible, that horrible, horrible obsession was not on me like it had been. And uh, uh, my family required a lot of follow-up on making amends. I mean, a lot. You know, I'd followed up on breaking their hearts for a long, long time. And so, uh, and, and we're st- you know, and it has gotten increasingly better, better and better and better. Um, to this day, though, there's not one member of my family who'll stand in the doorway and say, no, please don't go to the meeting tonight. You know, that never happens in my family. <laughs> but one of the first texts I get on my uh, AA anniversary every year is from my daughter. Then other women started asking me to sponsor them. And I got to tell you, the only fifth step I like better than mine is yours. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Because in, in your eyes, I see redemption and I see forgivability and I see lovability and I see growth where I don't always see it in myself. And I'm a big believer that we got to give it away to get it. Something happens when the light comes on in your eyes. The fire burns brighter in me. After a couple of years, I'd had you guys, and my daughter didn't have anybody. She was she was 12 years old now, coming home at all hours of the night, beat up and bloody. She'd been jumped into a gang and starting to find her sense of family and camaraderie out in the street where I used to. And I was getting scared. It was going to take more than just a you know a couple of readings and a meditation for this one. You know, she was saying things like, "I'm going to have one of my friends bust a cap in you," <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh." <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> So I had to lie to her to get her into a treatment center, and uh, you know, and I'm thinking, God, am I signing her life away? Am I doing what I wasn't so sure was good for me to, to you know, to have done with me and and uh, and all of that? But I don't know, I don't know anything else. I had kind of done this. I had insurance. I was working at a good place. I had insurance, so I I had the option of looking up one of these places. Found a place. The director was 17 years sober, so that helped me. But I was signing the papers and. She was not happy, but she was in the other room, and she was starting to calm down. And I felt a hand on my shoulder while I was signing the papers, and I looked up. It was a guy from my home group who was a, a recreational guy there at that program. And I thought, somebody's going to be here with my daughter. You know, I, and, and Billy S. Yes in Las Vegas says, God sees around corners. You know, God sees around how, to, uh, how all of this stuff is supposed to work out. I just take care of the footwork, and he takes care of the results. And I don't know. I'd been taking, uh, uh, picking up young adolescent girls uh, from uh, the treatment center over near where we lived on Saturdays for a couple of years and taking them to meetings on Saturdays. Now somebody's going to be taking my daughter somewhere. Um, and she was in that uh, treatment center for about six months. And in the meantime, I was going to work and showing up when they asked me to, just doing the footwork. You know, that's it. That's it. They told me mountains are moved a spoonful at a time, and every day is my best spoonful. That's it. That's all i got to worry about. But it's got to be my best spoonful. And she got out, and she wanted to go live with her dad for a while, and I had to step out of the way and let her go do that. And, and uh, while she was gone, you know, um, and it's been said over and over and over here, you know, uh, I live on a foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous does not remove the problems from my life. It allows me to live my life awake and alive and facing them head on. So I'm five years sober, and... Uh, I came home from the gym one night. I've gotten better jobs. You know, it it just, you know, rolling along, rolling along in AA, active, and taking the steps. And I come home from the gym one night, and I took my shower as usual. I always find it necessary to tell you I showered after the gym, just so you know. and, uh, (laughs) And I went to bed, and in the middle of the night I woke up, and there was a man standing over my bed with a knife to my neck and his hand over my mouth, and he said, don't say a word or I'll cut your head off. And he took the telephone cord and he tied my hands behind my back and he raped me and he robbed me that night in my room. And at five years of sobriety, I want to tell you that I had a much bigger God than I got here with. I told you about all the disjointed ideas about God that I'd had before. And and when I got here, I kind of laid them all out and didn't know which one to take. And a lady named Susan said, why don't you just call him God and let him get as big as he needs to be in your life. Just call him God and let him go from there. And at the end of our, our uh, the chapter to the agnostics, it says, when we drew near, he disclosed himself to us. So it's my job to draw near in any way, you know, whatever way. Emmett Fox then says that, that we're a spark from the same fire. I've got God's DNA. God's got no grandchildren. And I hear that. And then I heard, "If uh, is God everything or is he nothing? What is our choice to be? And if God's everything, there's nothing else. I'm a part of that. So at five years of sobriety, there's a man on my back in the middle of my room in the middle of the night, and I've got a God, and I don't know how things are going to go. I know things are as they should be, whether I like them or not. And I got a chance to say a prayer for my daughter if she was going to hear some bad news about her mom. I didn't know. And after a couple of hours, we got in kind of a tussle and a wrestling match and instead of getting madder, he got out and he left out the kitchen window, the same window he'd come in. And it turned out that I knew this guy. Um, I'd watched him get sober 30 days before I did. I watched him get his life, his wife, his kids and everything back, and then I watched him join the church and leave AA behind, and when he went out he went out like that. And what I chose to learn from that is while the big book tells us to be quick to see where religious people are right. AA is where I learn the terms and conditions of my disease. This is where I learn that I'm not one of those people who can go home after a Sunday sermon and have a glass of wine. I come here and anything else I do is in addition to, not instead of, Alcoholics Anonymous. I have to do that. So there was a trial that followed, and my sponsor told me I was going to have to forgive him. I know she's right. I know we're people who can't handle even seemingly justifiable resentments. But the guy had scared me. Five years of sobriety, I still go to anger to to, to self-propel. You know, it's my self-propulsion. It's my protection. It makes me feel purposeful, like you can't hurt me. And yet again, you know, it's like, it's like a suit that doesn't fit anymore. I can't be angry. I can't not be angry. You know, I don't know how to be something different. I want to be that. I am this. Seven step prayer became my mantra. As part of the defense, they had a lot of the guys I'd known years before get up and testify as to who I used to be and, uh, including my ex-husband. And that's the, that's the mark I'd left on him was the fact that he was more inclined to testify on behalf of the rapist than he was for me. He's never been interested in any of my amends. That has to be okay now. Um, And then by that time, I was working at a big uh, investment firm, downtown Los Angeles, a big fancy place. I mean, Henry Kissinger used to walk the halls. He sat on the board of this place. You know, and I was walking undetected through the halls, you know, (laughs) just doing what they asked me to do. And and the division head there uh, uh, of the department where I worked volunteered to come and testify on my behalf as a character witness. And he showed up and they told him all about who I used to be. And he said, yeah, but she shows up early and she stays late. And she was where she said she was. And see, that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaking for itself. He didn't have to be coached. He just got up and told the truth as he'd experienced it through me. Then it was my turn to, wit- to sit in the witness stand and to testify. And it was for me to testify. You know, it was for me to testify. I was to learn to forgive and testify at the same time, to be responsible and um, and, and yet not harbor a resentment. Hmm. And, uh, footwork, you know, one step at a time, one step at a time to let the, to let life unfold instead of trying to rip it open. And, uh, I was sitting in the witness stand and I look out and I saw him. And you know, on page 67 in our book, and I'm a page quoter, I don't apologize for it. If I misquote things, then you'll know exactly where to find it. And, uh, (laughs) but there's a little recipe for forgiveness at the top of that page. It says, though we didn't like their symptoms and the way they manifest, he liked, They, like ourselves, were perhaps spiritually sick. He, like me, was perhaps spiritually sick. I saw him sitting in a place where I could be sitting again. If I were to take a drink, that could be me. And I saw me and him. Not me from a spiritual mountaintop, but me, like he. And we were two alcoholics sitting on opposite sides of the courtroom. And just like a crack of light under the doorway, you know, I started to begin to be willing to relinquish that fear, that fear that held me up, that counterfeit, that counterfeit power. For a real power. And it took about 18 months for all the nightmares and the stuff attendant to the jumpiness, you know, you just kind of involuntary stuff that happens with something like that. But it went. And I changed. And I didn't have to let all of that, that incident again cause I, by that time I had done some inventories, you know. And I know how the past can color the present. It can color who I see in front of me, you know, in a way that they're, that they're not. And it colors me on the inside in a way that I'm not. So to relinquish that was a, um, a freedom, a great freedom. And He was sentenced to 20 years, and he did 17, and as yet he's not been able to stay out of prison. And the only way I know that is because I get the letters from the prison when he's being released again. And I know it works in prison because I've had the privilege of going in the, into the prisons and talking to those guys. And I know that some of them are never getting out, and yet through Alcoholics Anonymous they found a way to be uh, available to each other and to the people that they've harmed. The detective who worked that case came to me and he said, I don't know who you were back then, I'm not even sure, I want to know, but whatever it is you're doing now, keep doing it because it seems to be working. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous speaking for itself. You know, I brought some troubles down uh, on myself over time. Uh, you know, that our troubles are of our own making. I've had big jobs, little jobs, no job, lost homes, found homes, uh, you know, all, all kinds of stuff is happening in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I bring it to you, and uh, and we sit down and we have a meeting, and we stay sober and find out what's next. You know, I find out what's important, what's not important. I'm supposed to have the house for a little while, I'm not supposed to have it anymore. <laughs> you know, whole different ideas of what success really is. Um, my daughter came back to live with me, and I got to be president at the birth of my first grandson. I just called him yesterday morning and wished him a happy 18th birthday. <laughs> In a couple of weeks, I get to go watch him graduate from high school. And... Uh, And this didn't hit me till just now. But then we get on a plane and we go out to Akron and we get to celebrate Founder's Day with I don't know how many of our closest friends out there, but to say thank you. Thank you for the life. Thank you for allowing me to see my grandsons grow up and to be a part of their lives and for them to see Grandma Carla, just like the old lady who comes over to visit once in a while, you know. <laughs> some of, some of my sponsees think that too. <laughs> I forget, you know, I feel, you know, 23, and uh, I look in the mirror and think, whew, <laughs> who's that? My dad doesn't have to sit up nights anymore watching the news to make sure his daughter's name isn't on the list of the victims of the serial killers of the day. You know, he sleeps well and he knows why. About two, about two years before I got sober, my baby sister committed suicide at the age of 17. It took her all weekend to die. And while she lay on life support in a West Covina Hospital, the family would gather in the waiting room, and then I'd go out to the parking lot where the booze was, and I'd drink in the, in the van, and then I'd go back in, and I'd rake my mother across the coals. And I'd talk to her in a way a daughter should never talk to her mother, especially when her baby lay dying in the next room. And I don't know how you make amends for that, except that I started by calling her once a week and trying to find out how I might add to her life instead of take. My mom had had a long, long, long relationship with prescription pills, and she wasn't always there. She didn't understand it wasn't she. She didn't even know she wasn't there. She just didn't know that she didn't know. I didn't know that either for a long time. And and uh, and 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 what I discovered in making these calls was that she just needed me to listen. I just just listen. And um, and we got closer and closer and closer over time. And. And uh, so much so that about uh, 11 or 12 years ago, my baby brother died of this disease. He was 30 years old, six 6'10", 160 pounds, when he lay on life support in a Spokane hospital. His heart was disintegrating from the crank, and he wasn't going to stop drinking. And mercifully, when he died, I got to go up and be the kind of a daughter my mother needed while she buried dead a second child. And I don't know what kind of pain that is for a parent. But I know that this time, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I got to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. And I love that. I love that when my family sees me come and they smile and their eyes light up and they're glad to see me. I love that my mother-in-law loves me. I love that that she wants us to be a part of our, of that she wants me to be a part of their family. I love that. About 17 years sober. I don't know if this has happened to any of you guys but sometimes I I, I tend to take myself a little too seriously. <laughs> Maybe not in this room, I don't know, but uh you know you just get, I don't know, start out enthusiastic, then it becomes th- real enthusiastic, then it becomes plain God, and then you're just like, urgh, urgh, urgh. Yeah. you know, my sponsees are like, I don't want to call her, you call her. Yeah. <laughs> I love her, but I don't want to call her, I don't want to talk to her. Just unapproachable, I don't know. Um, perfectionism doesn't mean you're perfect, just means you're now obsessed with the idea of becoming so, so that makes you a lot of fun. But I'm going to, you know, I've got a few minutes. I'm just going to, you know, all my sobriety, I've had to do something physical. It kind of takes the edge off a little bit. It provides serotonin and a whole lot of other things that we go looking for in pl- other places. But, you know, a little exercise doesn't hurt. Quick walk around the, the block or something. But, um, you know, I've try- and, and it's a good meditation. always been a meditation for me. You know, repetition in the gym. You know, whatever. Rollerblading. Shh, shh, shh. Me and the dolphins at the beach, you know. You see the curb, you don't argue with the curb. The curb is. <laughs> Tried surfing for a little while, and my friend Lisa describes surfing as uh, like being in a domestically violent relationship without actually having to have a partner. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, that was true. You know, I got beat up a lot by the surfboard, so I had to try something else. And, I, I found an Arthur Murray dance studio. That's what I did next. And I, so I'm a little stiff and brittle. You can't, you know, I, I went in for my uh, uh, complimentary rumba lesson. And you can't be stiff and brittle when you're trying to do the rumba, can you? You've got to get some wiggle on, you know. So I'm about halfway through this dance lesson. And the teacher, he stops. And in his beautiful French-Haitian accent, he says, Oh, Carla, do not try to dance like a good girl. I don't think they will believe you anyway. <laughs> It's a true story. <laughs> I don't know how I knew. But in the ninth chapter of our book, it says our dark pasts are our greatest possession. My past has been woven into a huge tapestry that is my life. It's there for those who need to see it. They see it. And yet I walk a free woman in the real world. Was that two, Roger? Five. Five. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> I work at Home Depot now, so it's like, yay! Hey, what? <laughs> There's no polite, it's just. <laughs> Gratitude. You know, I, I, we were getting on the plane here to come here, and I, it hit my heart to call my sponsor Marguerite. Marguerite, every sponsor I've ever had has given me something and taken me somewhere and shown me something, but Marguerite gave me my soul back. She was the one who agreed to be my sponsor when I turned. Uh, uh, when the rape happened, and I had had a man up till then and and uh, and he was wonderful um, he uh, uh He was just one of those good old boys Lee you know who uh, uh he 'd say things like well that 's going to feel a whole lot better since soon as it quits hurting <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> but marguerite Marguerite gave me a map to my soul and uh and you know there were times that I mistook her kindness for stupidity. And times that I took her for granted. And times I thought she's just an old lady she doesn't know, but I'll play along. And I was overwhelmed. I was overcome. Everything she's ever said. God, you know, sometimes don't you just want to go back and buy those old-timers flowers or something? take them to breakfast when you, when you realize what, you, what they were giving you and you didn't know. <laughs> and they didn't care. They just like,
1: ah, okay.
0: <laughs> Keep coming back. If you don't die first, <laughs> but I had to call her and thank her. God, I was on the plane. I just had to call her and thank her because all of a sudden it hits you, you know. Um, <laughs> but I guess my best example of gratitude, and then I'll sit down, was when we had this little pup uh, come into our lives uh, a couple years, a year or so ago, and uh, her name we named her Sammy, and she, she's a little pit bull sweetie. And she came in, and she was, Doug was in the workshop, and, and uh, she was licking his toes, and he looked down. And so we ended up taking care of her for a little while. And this is what this is what she showed me, you know. Every day I'd get up, and I'd, get, I'd go get her food, you know. I'd go fill her bowl up with the food, the same food she saw last night and yesterday and the day before and the day before that. Same food, you know. And I'd set it down in front of her, and she'd look at me, and she'd look at the food and look at me, and like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> We're going to eat. Thank you. (laughs) Then she'd eat and she'd run into the bedroom where Doug and I were. You know, we'd just be hanging out and she'd jump on us and she'd look at him and look at me and look at him and look at me, like the same faces she saw last night and yesterday and the day before and the day before that, you know, and she'd be like, It's you! Then she'd hop off the bed and run out in the backyard, and she'd run around the yard, the same yard she saw last night, the day before, the day before that. You know, goldfish mentality. Ooh, a castle. Ooh, a castle. Ooh, a castle. (laughs) (laughs) And i just see the glee, you know. She'd just be in the glee, the glee of this moment, the moment I never wanted to be in. Teresa talked about it. Everybody's talked about it this weekend. You know this moment—the moment I was always afraid of. This moment where the God is. This is where I feel the God. You know when I learned that in dancing. You know and in dance when I when I'm worried about the step I'm about to take and upset about the step I just took. You know I, I I can't I can't be in this moment when I stand in frame and I allow myself to be led. I never know what pattern I'm executing till it's over, and then I get to really feel the bliss, the the the, the excitement, the wonder. Of this moment. The moment I never could be in before. Awaken alive. If you're new, answer the call. The call to sobriety. Wake up and the awakening has to continue. And I'm going to stay. I hope you do too. Thank you for letting me share.